Father, I thank you for a call on each of our lives to serve you, Father. Thank you for that. Thank you that you didn't just save us and bring us into the family of God and then leave us to our own. But you gave us an assignment, each of us in our own way, Father. You've given us something or some collection of duties that we can perform in service to you because we love you. And it's in that work, Father, that you've given us that we come to really understand what it means to be a child of God. I I assume, Father, that it's much in the same way that a parent in a home will assign duties to their own children, Father, because they'll really understand what it's like to be part of a family when they share in the work of that family. And they also share in the blessings and the, the rewards that come from that work. And you've given us all these things as well by faith. And Father, we confess that we don't always live up to those expectations. Our own desires and the, the temptations of this world will impose upon us, uh, will, will impinge upon us, and, and will keep us from serving you as we should. And we know that that's the case sometimes. And Father, you've brought us the book of Ezekiel, and the power and the majesty of your glory is revealed in this book so that we would have greater reason and desire to serve. We can understand you better and see the opportunities better. And I thank you, Lord, for that. Now the the task is ours, Father. Are we going to hear? Are we going to obey? Are we going to think differently about ourselves and about our life? Or are we going to just keep going on with what we're doing? I pray, Lord, you would use this word today to really arrest us in our path if it's not the right path and turn us to the better path to serve you in a better way, wherever that might be, however that might be. We pray for that, Father. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're studying Ezekiel's commissioning as a prophet. We're going to finish that up today. This is uh, the part of the book that covers chapters 1 through 3. So as we finish 3 today, we're finishing his commissioning. Last week, I taught on Ezekiel's mission to speak the truth of God to the people of Israel. In the second half of 2 and into the first half of 3, you see the Lord commanding Ezekiel to go and to speak to this rebellious group of people in Israel, those who were in exile in Babylon. He told Ezekiel, I want you to be obedient to this calling regardless of whether they listen to you or not. And he warned him, in fact, they're not going to listen to you, most of them, and they're going to treat you harshly as a result of what you're telling them. But I don't care, and you shouldn't care. Don't fear them. Speak boldly. Don't hold back the truth. And above all, he says, I want you to hold to what you're telling them. I want you to set the example. You obey me too. And all of these things, we learned last week that Ezekiel becomes an example for the people of God, for you and I today. Because although we're not prophets, we all have a, a common calling in the faith to reach the lost, to go out to a dying world with the truth. And even if we haven't received this kind of vision of God on His throne and so on, we've still received something very precious, arguably even more precious. We have the full counsel of the Word of God, and we have the Spirit of God living in us. Those are the only two things you need in order to be effective in this calling. So, by way of Ezekiel's example, we said last week that we are also called to speak truth in love, even though we know that most of the people we encounter in the world are not going to approve of this message. And some of them might treat us pretty badly as a result. Now, moving on, we're ready to conclude this section. And where we go today is in considering the personal costs that are going to come for speaking the truth for God. And as we begin, I want you to remember the words of Christ out of Luke 14. I'll just quote a small section of it where Jesus says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit down first and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Following Jesus as his disciple brings personal cost. You've got to pick up your own cross, as Jesus said, which means you have to be prepared, you have to know this going in, that if I'm going to call myself a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a personal sacrifice required here. It could go as much as our own life. But at least it's something. And to illustrate what he means, he talks about building a tower here, right? This cost and effort required to build a tower. He says, who amongst us would ever go about the effort of a project like that without determining beforehand, do I have enough to complete it? I mean, for example, would you build a pool in your backyard if you didn't know you had enough money? Wouldn't you at least get an estimate first? Wouldn't you at least do a budget? Right? We all do this. How foolish would it be to start digging and then realize, oh, this is going to cost that much? Well, now I can't finish. Now you just have a big pit. And if you're not willing to look foolish in front of your neighbors for the sake of a backyard pool, then why would you risk humiliation before the living God by agreeing to follow Him without at least considering what He's going to ask of you in the process? You have to appreciate the cost if you're going to be prepared to accept them. And that's the challenge facing Ezekiel this morning. He's received a call from God, one that will bring significant costs, and the Lord is telling him up front what those costs are so that he can prepare himself to accept them. So that they won't come at him in a surprising moment, and then he decides it's not worth it. Now let's go to chapter 3 of Ezekiel, verse 12. This is where we pick up in this discussion. Ezekiel says, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, even a great rumbling sound. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. And I went, embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Then I came to the exiles who lived besides the river Shebar at Tel Aviv, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. All right, well, that's an intriguing opening. Let's see what we're talking about here. Ezekiel, as you remember, he was in the vision where we left off, so he starts today still in this moment in which he has an audience with God in some form. And he says at about verse 12, this is where the Lord has stopped speaking. And he says he's lifted up by the Spirit, that is, he's taken by the Spirit away from this moment, transported back to the exiles in Babylon. We don't exactly know how this worked. We're not here to try to figure that out. We just know that he was at the exiles. He then went to go see God. Now he's coming back to where the exiles are in Babylon. And he hears, he says, behind him the cherubim, those living creatures, making great noises behind him. They can, he can hear their wings, their wheels. So it appears as though he's no longer looking in that direction. His back is now turned to God and to those things. All he can do is hear them behind him. And in the midst of all that rumbling, he hears a voice declare, Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. So the mention of God's glory at this moment is reminding us that all of those sounds and all the things he saw before that, all those manifestations, are all part of something the Bible calls the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory of God. The word Shekinah just means dwelling in Hebrew. So it refers to the presence of God dwelling among men. And the Shekinah glory makes frequent appearances in the Old Testament. You most commonly see it in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the place above the mercy seat where the glory of God is visible to the high priest. That's the Shekinah glory. This is Ezekiel's first exposure to the Shekinah glory of God. But he's going to see it often. And that's kind of ironic because remember he was training to be a priest. 
Now the priests within Israel were the only ones who would ever get even close to this place of the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle. Only the priests could go in there. So he would have been among the privileged few of Israel to get near the glory of God, the dwelling of God's glory among men. And yet, as an exile now, we said last time, that he'll never have a chance to be a priest. He's never going to go back to Israel. There's never going to be a temple or a tabernacle where he is. So he's had all this training and all this preparation he never gets to use. And the irony is, while he's in exile, he actually has a better view of the Shekinah glory of God than he ever would have had, had he actually been a priest as he planned to be. Remember, you and I may have our eyes on certain ministry opportunities, certain missions. We may think that's what God wants us to go do, and then we go after it, and then He redirects us. We talked about this the first week, remember? And redirection in our personal ministry is not a sign of failure, necessarily. It's not a reason to pout. It may mean God has something a lot better for you than you thought you were getting the first time. You need to be flexible. And we've talked on that before. I won't go any further there. But into verse 14. We now have Ezekiel's first reaction to everything he just saw and heard. Everything we've been looking at over the last several weeks in chapters 1 and 2. He says he was embittered in the rage of his spirit. Here's what he's saying. As a result of that remarkable encounter with God, he is now wrestling inside himself with two conflicting emotions. He has bitterness and he has rage in his spirit. Let's start with the last one first, rage in his spirit. The Hebrew for rage here could be translated literally as heat. It's the word for heat. So you could say he felt heat in his spirit. And who could blame him? He, he just had an audience with the living God. He's seen the glory of God. He's seen the awesome majesty of cherubim. He's seen God on his throne, at least in a form as God presented it to him. Have you ever had the opportunity to meet a childhood hero, a famous musician or celebrity or movie star, or somebody you just idolize, you see him at a, at a show somewhere, and they sign a baseball for you? Or when you come away, when people come away from an encounter with someone they idolize, don't they usually walk away from that moment uh, flushed, exhilarated, jubilant? You know, this is something they've always wanted, and they just have that connection with somebody for a moment, it's enough to get him hot in that sense of heat. I think that's what Ezekiel's feeling, at least in part. And you need to magnify his effect by a million, because he just saw God. All right, That's a big difference in seeing Elvis. A little bit, okay, but it's a, it is a difference. His spirit is hot in that sense, having come so close to the glory of God. But on the other hand, he says he's embittered. He's probably feeling bitterness because he knows, as he sits here now by the river again, he knows how little regard his countrymen have for the glory of God. He has just experienced the sweetness of the word of the Lord and the awesome majesty of God, and now here he is back with his people in Tel Aviv, and he sees on full display around him the depravity and the idolatry and the indifference of Israel to this great God who has called them out and saved them. Therefore, he knows terrible things are coming for this group of people because of their sin. And when you put those two things together, knowing how great God is and how much these people are spurning Him, you just get bitter about it. It reminds us that prophecy is a double-edged sword. You know, on the one hand, it's sweet to know God's purposes in advance. That's why the scroll was sweet in his mouth. Remember in Revelation chapter 10, you may know, the Apostle John is told to eat a scroll also. And in his experience in 10, it goes into his mouth, it's sweet. And then as it goes into his stomach, he says it made his stomach bitter. That's exactly how prophecy works. Ezekiel, like John, found the word of prophecy sweet in his mouth. It's kind of cool to know what's coming. But the content of that word begins to hit home. And as it does, it left him 
bitter. And friends, just to be clear, it's not the Word of God that leaves you bitter. It's sinful people who are obliviously living out their sinful lives without concern for what God's Word is telling them. It's the feeling you have when someone does something they shouldn't do and you're frustrated over the fact they won't do the right thing or they won't understand the truth. In this case, it's Israel's hard heart that has left the prophet feeling bitter in light of the revelation he's just received. As he sits down there after having had that experience, he realizes, you guys aren't getting it. Your hearts are so hard, you're not even going to be turned by these severe warnings that God has for you, and the outcome's going to be a disaster, and it's a bitter thought. So you may identify a little bit with this. Now, we haven't had visions of God, but if you've come to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ, then you'll also have a heart that wants everyone, essentially, to understand and appreciate what you understand and appreciate. And you'll feel some excitement in that, perhaps. And you'll have, some would call it a burning desire, of a fire for Christ. You know, you'll have this desire to tell everyone that Christ is Lord and to share the Word of God. You'll feel like one of those disciples who were on the road to Emmaus in chapter 24 of Luke. You remember, after Jesus' resurrection, we read this, verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. You know, their first thought was to turn around and walk back and tell people. That's the right response. That's what you should feel after you have an experience, after you have a revelation of a holy God. You get excited, and you want to tell people about it. That's the heat. But at the same time, you may experience a growing bitterness. The closer you get to the glory of God, the more intolerant and even bitter you and I may become towards sin and toward others who approve of sin. The better you know God, the more you will respond to sin the way He responds to sin. So as you experience the majesty of God, you'll recoil at the vanity of human beings. And if you understand the righteous judgment of God, then you will shudder as you contemplate the destiny of sinners who go unrepentant. And the more you know the wisdom of God in His Word, the more you'll lose patience for all the foolishness that passes as wisdom among humanity. And once you have the perfection and the holiness of God living inside you, you will begin to hate sin, especially your own. And even more than that, you'll begin to feel sadness when you see that the world just does not get it. You ever have that feeling? That I don't know if it's sadness, I don't know if it's longing, I don't know if it's bitterness, melancholy, I don't know what the word is. When you see unbelievers living in sin with impunity, as if there will never be a judgment, as if there's no one who will call them to the carpet for what they've done and how they live, you know judgment for that person is a heartbeat away, as they say. And so, if you have the love of God living in you, you will feel this emotion of hurt, of some form of hurt, where you see people living like that, and you wish you could rescue them, because you know it's possible if they would just turn. Now, maybe you approach them, maybe you don't, maybe there's opportunity, maybe there isn't, but the feeling goes with you everywhere, because the sin of the world is everywhere. I tell people all the time when they say they they try to isolate themselves from the sin of the world, they don't go to see certain movies, they don't eat in a certain establishment because of their corporate policies and all that. Okay, I get it. Do as your convictions lead you. But you're really trying to swim in the unchlorinated part of the pool. I mean, you're in the world. It's everywhere. It's saturated. You can't separate the sin of one organization from the rest of the world, right? It's all around you. Just pick your battles, but don't think yourself more holy because you didn't visit some restaurant or shopping mall. That didn't change your holiness at all. 
The point is, we're here to be a witness to that sin, not to partake in it. But you can't be in the world without also being around it. That's the challenge we have here. That's the, the sense of, the, of his bitterness. He's got to be where he is. He can't stand up and walk away from the Chebar River and say, Oh, look at all you losers. I'm not a part of this anymore. I've seen the glory of God. So, goodbye. Good luck to you. No, he's got a mission. He's been put back there, and he feels it. So, we understand these feelings. You might even classify it as righteous anger, but it only remains righteous if you put it to work in the right way. You can't let your resentment over other people's sin lead you to judge them harshly or to refrain from serving them with the truth, to refrain from sharing the gospel because you feel like that person doesn't deserve it. You ever felt that instinct? You're so bitter about them that you're sort of secretly looking forward to the day that they're going to have to face judgment for all that they've done. I mean, as if you have control over their salvation anyway. I mean, we don't. If you don't know that that's true, go read Jonah, right? He didn't want 400,000 people to be saved in Nineveh, but that didn't stop God, right? Now, I doubt most of us would admit to thinking that way about someone, and I suspect, though, we all have that feeling somewhere in the back of our head. And we know it's unloving, it's sinful, right? It's exactly the opposite of what Jesus would do. Right? He experienced the ugliness of humanity in ways that none of us will ever have to experience. People spat in the face of God himself as he went to the cross. Right? It's hard to do worse than that. And yet he showed no bitterness toward that sin. In fact, when he was on the cross, one of the seven things he said while he was on the cross was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So that's the attitude that we have to adopt. That's the attitude that Ezekiel has to adopt, which is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Truly, they don't. And here's the other thought before I leave this point. That was you and I before salvation anyway. That was who we were before the gospel came, or at least who we could have become. So if we look down our noses at someone else who's dead in their sins and doesn't know any more than that, well then, that that would essentially be condemning yourself, because you're saying no one deserves what you have. That's why we've been given the Spirit. That's why we have the Word, to share it. All right. So that's the challenge Ezekiel has. He has to share the glory of God and the Word of God with a group of people who don't want to hear it and will probably make him miserable for it. So let's see how he gets started with that mission. Verse 15. He's back now, sitting among the exiles in Tel Aviv. And then it says at the end of verse 15, he says, I'm causing them consternation. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's translated this way, Ezekiel 3.15, Then I passed through the air and came into the captivity and went round them that dwelled by the river of Chebar, who were there, and I sat there seven days conversant in the midst of them. So the Septuagint says Ezekiel was conversing as he sat among the people, but the NASB, which I read the first time, says he was causing consternation. And I think these two thoughts are going hand in hand. That's why they're both reflected in these two translations. That in other words, he's sitting there, having come back from where he was, and he's talking to the exiles for a whole week. And what do you think he'd be talking about? The weather? No, he's probably telling them what he just saw. I mean, as best he can, right? He's telling them, look, this is what I saw. I think there's some bad stuff coming. He's told me I'm supposed to talk to you. He said, you're not going to listen, but I'm supposed to tell you anyway. Keep in mind, he has not been given a specific message as of yet. God has not said, thus saith the Lord to Ezekiel. He has no mission yet to talk. So it's easy to assume, I think it's true to assume, he's getting ahead of the Lord here. He's sharing his personal experiences, and as a result, he's probably confusing them, or at the very least, he's freaking them out, as we would say. And he's causing consternation because he's speaking about mysteries. He's speaking about frightening things. And he doesn't have the whole story yet. 
So he's just causing consternation. His start in this is a little premature and not going very well. And it's because he's not working with the Lord here. He's trying to do it in his own. Let's see where it goes next. After seven days of all of this, now the Lord's ready to give Ezekiel a word. But he's got to fix the problem that Ezekiel just created. Verse 16. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die. And you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked ways that he may live. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you have delivered yourself. Now let me walk you through what he's saying to Ezekiel and why. Again, this comes after seven days of Ezekiel sitting around having conversation. Now, this is the first time he's receiving a word from the Lord. This is not the word for them, though. You notice this is a word for him. The word that's going to follow starts chapter 4. So we're still looking at a preparatory set of instructions for how this is going to work. You can imagine this is Ezekiel's first day on the job, and God is explaining to Ezekiel, this is how this is going to work. Okay, And you notice there's no vision this time. You don't have creatures darting about, doing wheelies and all the rest. It's just the word of the Lord. From here on, that's how he's going to be told. This is the word that you're going to deliver. And although we don't know how that took place, it's obvious he's confident this came from God. And then in verse 17, the Lord starts giving those instructions. He says, first of all, Ezekiel, here's what you are, basically. Basically, you're a watchman. A watchman in that day was anyone who would stand guard for a city. They would walk around the top of a wall that guarded the city. They'd walk on that wall, and they'd be looking out, and they'd be watching for any threat that might come against the city. The point is this. A watchman's job is not to fight. Watchmen don't fight the battle. Their job was to issue warnings to the people so that they could respond properly to the threat and fight in the battle. Watchmen were just watchmen. They just watched and then spoke. So what God is telling Ezekiel is, your job is to warn the people of Israel so they can act accordingly to my warning. You're not supposed to act on your own here. I don't need you to take matters into your own hand. You're not supposed to go fight this battle for me. You just talk to them. And you only tell them what I tell you to say. I'm going to relay a warning, you're going to give it to them, and then that's the end of your job. Now, of course, being a good watchman requires that you relay that information completely and in a timely fashion and do it accurately and all the rest, right? He's got to be true to the word. I mean, what would you think of a watchman who only told you half the story or didn't tell you until it was almost over? I mean, you're obviously not a good watchman, right? So it's the watchman's job to do that part well, and then that's the end of it. Now, there's something in it for the watchman in this. You know, if you're a watchman over a city that's being attacked and you don't do your job well, guess what happens when the attack begins? You're going to die with the rest of the city. So it's in your own best interest as a watchman to do your job well, to give advance warning, to get the troops ready, right? And that's part of what he's now told Ezekiel too. He says in verse 18, he says to Ezekiel, Whenever I, God, issue a warning to the wicked, to the unrighteous, Ezekiel, you're going to be held responsible for what you do next. 
If you fail to deliver the message that I've asked you to deliver to these wicked people, then the wicked are still going to die. I mean, whether they hear the warning or not, that's not changing the threat. But what is going to change is you're going to die with them. Conversely, in verse 19, he says, On the other hand, if you give the warning properly, I'll make sure you're preserved no matter what the unrighteous do with that warning. They can do the right thing. They can do the wrong thing. That'll be what determines their future. But because you did what I asked you to do, I'll preserve you either way. And then just to show that the Lord is even-handed, not a respecter of persons in this case, in this issue, he tells Ezekiel in verses 20 and 21, he says, this process is going to work exactly the same way for the righteous who fall into sin. So that is, if a righteous man suddenly goes off into some kind of sin, I'm going to have a warning for him too. And if he heeds that warning, he'll live longer on the earth. If he fails to heed that warning, he'll be consigned to an early death. And that is, God says, he'll put a stumbling block of some kind before him, causing him to die. But regardless of what that guy does with his warning, if Ezekiel's obedient to give the warning, he won't be caught up in the punishment either. Now, I want to be clear about what God is actually saying here in both cases, both for the righteous and the wicked. In both cases, the judgment he's talking about here is an earthly judgment of a physical nature. He's not speaking about the eternal judgment of the soul in these cases. The person's eternal judgment is determined by their faith alone, not by their works, not by whether they heed warnings or not. If you could save yourself by heeding warnings, that would be a work. So this is not about how you get to heaven. In fact, you'll notice that even though the Lord made a distinction between these two groups of people, He talked about the wicked first, then He talked about the righteous Next, right? Even though he had those two groups in his conversation, they both have exactly the same outcomes. Which tells us he's talking about earthly things, not about eternal things. Okay? So both groups have the potential to see their earthly lives cut short by God's judgments if they do not obey the warnings to get themselves out of sin. To stop doing the bad things that the nation is doing. What that tells us is God's speaking here in terms of the Old Covenant. He's not speaking in terms of salvation. He's speaking about the terms of that old covenant that God has with Israel that says Israel gets blessings when they behave properly. They get curses when they don't. It's not a covenant of salvation. It's a covenant about how God will deal with his people while they're on the earth. The outcomes that would follow for these people will be based on their faith. If they're an unbeliever, if they're wicked and they die... They're going to go into the second death. If they're the righteous and they get caught up in a punishment because they fall into sin, they're going to end up in eternal life. But there are consequences. You notice in verse 20, he adds that in the case of the righteous, their righteous deeds will not be remembered either. Which would suggest that those believers who fall into sin and ignore God's warnings and get caught up in this premature death, well, they're going to risk losing eternal rewards also. So again... There are eternal consequences, but salvation is not one of those on the line here. And so, he's saying to Ezekiel, this is the terms of the deal. They have to heed my warnings, or else I end their lives prematurely as a punishment, and you will get caught up in this if you're not doing the right thing. So now you understand what Ezekiel's cost was, his tower-building cost for serving the Lord. He could not look away from approaching danger. He could not fail to speak to Israel. He was not supposed to worry about the outcome. He wasn't supposed to take matters into his own hand. He was just to talk when he was told to talk, be a watchman, and leave it at that. He has to conform his behavior and his lifestyle 
to ensuring now that he is obedient to this calling. He can no longer sit among the exiles conversing about whatever thought pops into his head and share that with them as if he's helping them because that would convolute his mission. That would start to suggest that whatever he says is from the Lord, and now what is from him versus what is truly from the Lord gets mixed up in the minds of the listeners, and it starts confusing everyone. How is God going to ensure that this man is speaking only what he wants, and then God can fairly judge someone? If Ezekiel was just popping off all the time about whatever thoughts he had, and then mixed in there were some warnings from God, then when God goes to judge those people who ignore his warnings... They'd have a fair case to argue. They could say, well, I didn't know that was from you. I thought it was Ezekiel. He has all kinds of weird thoughts. God wants to be utterly clear, this is what I told you, now you're held accountable. And Ezekiel is going to have to pay a price to do that well. Ezekiel is no longer free to interact with his countrymen in the way that he prefers. He is constrained now by God to a very specific and a very restrictive lifestyle, one that makes him an effective prophet, but one that brings a significant personal cost. And if you want to see the full extent of what I'm talking about, look how the chapter ends. Verse 22. The hand of the Lord was on me there, and he said to me, Get up, go out to the plain, and there I will speak with you. So I got up, went out to the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory which I saw by the river Chebar. And I fell on my face. The Spirit then entered me and made me stand on my feet. And he spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself up in your house. As for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be mute and cannot be a man who rebukes them. Notice that? You cannot be a man who rebukes them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you will say to them, Thus says the Lord. He who hears, let him hear. He who refuses, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. Now these are the final instructions the Lord gives to Ezekiel in preparation for him to receive the very first prophecy, which we'll study next week in chapter 4. Ezekiel says, the hand of the Lord was on me by the river. That's the same thing he says earlier in verse 14. The hand of the Lord was on him in a strong way. What he's saying is this, I'm being comforted, strengthened, prepared. And that's because he's going to need this strength to do what he's being asked to do. And then the Lord tells him, I want you to go away from the camp. I'm going to give you a word of the Lord, but you're going to go away to this empty plain, an uninhabited area outside the town. Why does he want him to do that? I mean, he's by the river now getting the word of the Lord, hearing from him right now. Why not just do it all right here? Earlier, Ezekiel sat for a week in Tel Aviv in conversation with the exiles, probably telling them bad stuff's going to happen, the Lord's preparing judgment, you need to repent, sharing his own thoughts and his own wisdom, but it wasn't God's word. It wasn't God's wisdom. You remember last week, we said that you don't need to embellish on the word of God. God does not need your help. Just say what he gave you and let that do the work. That's essentially the, the issue for Ezekiel here. So now that the Lord is ready for Ezekiel to begin speaking to the people, he doesn't want these words to be confused as just more conversation. So his solution to Ezekiel's problem is get out of town for a while. We're going to separate you from everyone for a while. And you're going to get the instructions I give you in another place so that when you return, you're coming with a word from the Lord. And that distinction of distance is going to be enough to cause people to think differently about what you're saying You're not going to be just talking of your own accord anymore. And this is nothing unusual, by the way. Think back to what you know about God's use of prophets. And you'll notice this pattern. Moses went to Midian. 
And then later he went to the top of Mount Sinai so that in each case he could come back to God's people with a word from the Lord, even though he had been there with them already. Or Amos. Amos was a sheep herder, a grower of sycamore figs in the southern kingdom. God sent him to the northern kingdom to tell the king of the northern kingdom he was in trouble. Well, there were already prophets operating in the northern kingdom. Why didn't God just use one of them? Well, again, he wanted a man to show up with a message so that the message would be understood to be coming from God. News, in other words, something new. He drove John the Baptist into the wilderness so that John the Baptist could come out of the wilderness with a word that the Messiah was soon to arrive. He sent Saul, at the time Saul, into Arabia for several years so that when he came back as the Apostle Paul to the church, he had a new message from the one he previously had had persecuting the church. Even Jesus... Jesus had to go to Egypt as a child so that he could come out of Egypt, and then later he goes into the wilderness for 40 days so that he could come back and begin his ministry as if out of nowhere. It's, it's God's way of separating prophets from among the people to mark the delivery of something new so that the message doesn't get construed as coming simply from a man. So he goes out to a plain. He encounters the Shekinah glory of God. Notice the Spirit has to indwell him again. This goes back to what we said a few weeks ago in the Old Testament. The Spirit's indwelling is not permanent. It comes upon people when God wants it there for a reason. Here's evidence of it coming back. And then, verse 24, he says, You're going to live under house arrest from henceforth. You're going to stay in your home. You're not going to spend any time with these people. And in that way, I think God is accomplishing a couple things. First, he's no longer in a position to lead normal life, to interact with people. To just speak whenever he feels like speaking. No one's going to be around. And from this point forward then, the only time anyone in Israel hears Ezekiel speaking, they're hearing him speak, thus saith the Lord. He's like a living Bible. Every time he opens his mouth, it's scripture. That sounds really exciting, except when you consider how much is in the book of Ezekiel. That's not a lot of talking. And that's a lot of years for a few words. He's mostly silent after this. And to ensure that the people know that everything he says is coming from the Lord, he's not going to let him talk otherwise. Notice in verse 27, the Lord says that only when the Lord speaks to Ezekiel will he open his mouth. I think what the Lord is doing here is protecting Ezekiel from the people and even from himself in a way. Because remember, the people of Israel are immersed in sinful practices. That's the reason they're getting all these warnings. So if Ezekiel just lived among them in a completely normal fashion, like he has been, it had been really hard for him to fully separate himself from their practices. At a certain point, you do have to take physical steps to separate yourself from the sin of the world, at least in some ways. Or otherwise you're just caught up in them to such a degree that no one can see any difference between you and them. There is a middle ground there. You know, you can't completely leave the world and do your mission, but you can't just live and swim among all the sin and then expect them to hear you as if you have something different to tell them. So associating too closely with the nation of Israel is going to compromise his walk and his witness. How effective do you think he's going to be walking around saying, Yea, verily, the Lord says you're going to die in your sins. Look at all this sin. You need to walk away from your sin. And he's eating the same meat that was sacrificed to an idol the night before. He's living in the towns full of prostitution or whatever else they were doing. At some point, they're just going to look at him like a crazy old man. He needs to be so separated that they understand he has a conviction here that he's following, as well as a word from the Lord. So there's there's so much corruption in Israel, there's no safe harbor for him, except his own house. Verse 25, there's some language there that could be confusing. The Lord says Israel will put ropes on him, 
and bind him so that he cannot go out among them. But there's no evidence in the record of Ezekiel's book that something like this ever happens to him. We have no reason to think this ever literally happened. It's better understood as a figure of speech. This is what the Lord's saying. He's saying that, that the evil of Israel has tied Ezekiel's hands, so to speak. So that now he, he has no option except to isolate himself from their sin because there's so much of it everywhere. And in that sense, the people have bound him to his home. Finally, this isolation is going to protect Ezekiel from himself. Notice in verse 26 that he is going to make, God says he's going to make Ezekiel mute in cases where Ezekiel might decide to speak on his own. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you ever get a bright idea again to talk to them about things you're not supposed to talk to them about, I'm going to make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth and it's just going to stay there. I'm not going to let you talk. And he's already shown a propensity to do this. So we know he'll probably do it again in the future. And notice what God says at the end. The end of verse 26, he says, I'm not going to allow you to talk because they are rebellious. He's saying, I know these people are so rebellious that it's going to be unreasonable for me to expect you, Ezekiel, remaining silent in light of what you're seeing around you. You'd have to be the most heartless person in the world not to want to warn Israel of things you know are coming. So what he's saying to Ezekiel is, I know you're going to want to warn them more than I'm willing to warn them. So whenever you start seeing the rebellion and you start thinking, I've just got to do something, you're not going to be able to. Because I don't want that to happen. That the Lord has a certain plan and Ezekiel's not free to go off and do his own planning. God says he places Ezekiel in his home and prevents him from speaking to ensure that when he does speak, it's only God's words that come out. In the end, he was appointed to be a watchman. And remember, that means someone who faithfully delivers warnings. And after that, he just stands back and he lets the chips fall where they may. And the Lord says at the end there, anyone who hears and does them, great. Anyone who hears and refuses them, so be it. But that outcome is not your responsibility. Just be faithful to what I gave you. That's the personal cost Ezekiel had. And if you think light of that, I challenge you to consider in your own life what the cost for following Christ looks like in your own life. I doubt it equals what Ezekiel had to do. You're not going to be confined to your house the rest of your life and only speak the word of the Lord from now on and having no friends. Because even the few that do listen to you don't like what you say. What's our personal cost? There's some cost in your life to following Jesus. I'm not saying it's going to be a sacrifice to the degree of Ezekiel, and it certainly won't look the same one person to the next. But if you have lived with Christ, if you have a faith in Christ, and you've assumed that from that point forward in your life, you can just do everything exactly the same way you would have done it if you'd been an unbeliever. Same job, with the same hours, same travel requirements, same personal hobbies, same personal habits, same friends. If you think that life just can go on exactly the same, but now Christ is there with you, You haven't understood what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Because I assure you, that path you had before you came to Christ was not the right path. I assure you, it did not have what God wanted in it. It was full of sin and depravity and selfishness and personal desires and worldly thought. And all that stuff was there. Because that's who we are when we come into this world. right? We can't be anything but that person by nature. So if you just kept on that same path and you just added Jesus, I assure you, you are not pleasing Christ. And you probably didn't take enough time to think about what life with Christ looked like. You just assumed it's the same life, just with a plus sign next to it. Everything's just a little better. That's not true. It's better in the long run, but there's a personal cost in the near term. And that personal cost means less time for what we want and more time for what He wants. Less money for what we want, more money for what He wants. More sacrifice to the goals of glorifying Christ rather than to our own ego. 
it's going to come in different forms, but it's going to come. And I think it's a useful measure. If we aren't making an inventory of what goes because of what Christ brings, then we aren't in a position to serve Him. We're just sitting still. And there's a lot of people who live that way, live a life that's essentially their life with Christ added. That's not a successful recipe for discipleship. It doesn't put our salvation in jeopardy. I'm not raising that concern. But I'm saying that if you understand what's going on with Ezekiel here, you see a man who, because of his calling, gave up virtually everything that we can imagine he probably valued. Why? Only for the purpose of warning. Not even for the guarantee of a response. So, what God calls us to do might be very simple, might be very profound. But what He asks us to do in response is to show our devotion to Him as a disciple by making the sacrifices that demonstrate faith. Words are cheap. Actions count. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, show us where we may be giving You less than You have asked, Father. Show us in our lives where our service is perhaps lacking. If we're serving in our heart and with all our strength, Father, then encourage us in that so that we would continue. And uh, most of all, Father, we pray that as we go about serving, as we go forward making those sacrifices you've asked us to make, Father, I would pray you'd give us results in some earthly way, something we can see. It's so encouraging to us, Father, that we would see the result of our service now. We know we won't see it all, but we pray you'd give us a little bit of that encouragement. Father, for it is it is helpful. Thank you, Lord, for a church that preaches your word, continues to honor it as it should be honored, Father. Let us all be watchmen in our own walk, speaking the truth and love wherever you give us opportunity, and leaving the rest to you, Father, because you have it all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.